Shadowcast, episode 39, the SM Horror Magazine Story of the Month for May 2011. I'm your host, Jason Warden, and I'm so glad you're back with us for another great story from SM. This week's tale is Call of the Crows by John Barnes. John J. Barnes makes his fourth return to SM. This is his second Story of the Month. He's a native of Florida, currently traveling the world in the Air Force, but hopes to one day settle back into his roots. Between his long hours of work and fulfilling all of his military obligations, he finds as much time as possible to punch away at the keyboard. He's currently pursuing his bachelor's degree in English and enjoys running, rock music, and stories in all forms of media. John's former publications include Suspense Magazine, Horrorbound, and an allegory easing. He also appears in Bonded by Blood 3 and 4 anthologies. You can contact him at Facebook and MySpace, and links will be in the show notes. And without further ado, here's Call of the Crows by John Barnes. The circle convened shortly after Compline, the seventh and final ringing of the church bell, sent the townsfolk to rest. The four in meeting gathered behind cups of brandy and barrel-smoked whiskey, listening to the rain tap on the roof of the town hall, and waiting for the first of them to speak. Mavis, Constable, Arthur, Farrier, Kipling, Physician, and Brenner, Farmer. A blight had come to the village of Mailburg, one which bedeviled the townspeople. Crows, said Mavis, breaking the silence. How so many in such little time? It's been three dusks since first thaw, said Arthur. Flocks always arrive at the winter's end. But not in a manner such as this, Mavis retorted, and never with such hostility. It's as if the birds have learned a new courage overnight. They poison our wells with their excrement, and they pester our children and spook our livestock. Mention the size, have I? As big as small hounds, some of them, with beaks as sharp as spears. A problem solved with relative ease by a strong arm and a few good stones, Kipling said cheerily. Not that I am with hate for the creatures. They seem to possess a greater intelligence than that of your average beast, and I would be dishonest if I said I didn't respect them. Respect? Mavis screamed. I have greater respect for worms. At least a worm contributes fertile ground for healthy crops. Crows are not even of partial beauty. Venal scavengers, the whole lot. Brenner swallowed generously from his cup. Let us concentrate on the problem at hand, shall we? Debating on whether or not they are fine animals is without importance right now. Yes, Mavis, you're correct in your observation. With farms come crows, and we have plenty of both. But never the latter with such behavior, and in such great numbers. And what do you propose we do about it? Mavis said. Brenner ran his fingers through his long red hair and stared at the gentle cast of orange candlelight flickering along the wood grain walls. Of every man at this table, he felt he had the best knowledge of the crows and was by far more experienced at dealing with their wilds. But he knew these were different. Their black eyes were not the eyes of birds, but rather windows through which an unnamed evil watched with tireless hate. I have reason to believe we are at the mercy of a force greater than that of a few simple-minded birds, Brenner said. "'What say you?' Mavis said. "'We are subject to a force of black magic in our humble town.' Kipling sputtered laughter. 
What soul bored enough would be interested in cursing this heap of a place? Even the dogs go outside the gates to shit on better land. Have pride in your homeland. Never has a drifter whined or raised a brow to the comforts of Mailburg. We are just as good as any settlement in these parts, Mavis said. Kipling shrank behind his cup of brandy and sipped it discreetly. Lightning flashed outside, filling the room with a stuttering white strobe of pallor. A low growl of thunder followed, rolling through the sky like the echoing footfalls of a vast, roaming giant. The circle was silenced and remained as such for a good moment. Brenner heard the crows cawing from what sounded like miles away, speaking their grace to the weather as if to welcome it. Nature spoke in a different language than that of man's, Brenner thought. Who knew what the thunder was telling them? Say, for the sake of amusement, that what you believe is the truth, Mavis reasoned. What was done for us to deserve such a curse? I do not know, Brenner said, already having given the matter much thought. All I know is that it would be wise to stay clear of the crows, perhaps even take a few days' leave. Nonsense, Kipling said. As a matter of science, I cannot in good mind be a part of this conversation. I will not be forced to flee my home on account of these pests. I propose we pay the townspeople to get rid of them. One piece of copper for each feathered corpse they bring back. Splendid idea, said Mavis. Only a man of medicine could be so high of mind. What say the rest of you? Arthur agreed almost immediately. I only pray we have the copper for such a proposition. More of the blackbirds come every day, and shoeing horses is not the most profitable of trades. Not to worry, crow meat also makes a fine meal. The taste is something like chicken, Mavis said with a laugh. We'll use the birds for food and save wages on provisions until this is over. Even a farrier could agree to such a deal, Arthur. Brenner hesitated, spinning his cup on the table with his right hand. He knew he spoke too soon about mentioning the notion of a curse. Against his better judgment, Brenner agreed to follow Kipling's proposal. Good, said Mavis. Then it is settled. The mood lightened as soon as the matter was closed. The circle spent the next hour in a symphony of spirited laughter and jesting filling each other's cups copiously until the night took its toll on them. Brenner sat and drank for a while, yet he felt disconnected from the rest of them. A twitchy kink in his innards told him that the good Dr. Kipling's plan wasn't going to be so simple. Brenner got up and walked to one of the windows. The wind from the storm was still going strong. When the other three began slurring their words, he stared out at the night, listening to the crows chanting out in the darkness. I hope to the heavens I am wrong, he thought. Let me be wrong. Lightning streaked across the sky like a pair of galvanized skeletal fingers tracing the mountains in the distance with a blue-white radiance. Brenner's eyes went wide at what he saw in that brief moment, a face molded in the clouds with dark hollows for eyes that lit up like a jack-o'-lantern in the lightning. It looked over the town with a knowing grin. Brenner decided against taking part in the murdering of the crows. He sent his son, Paul, to the convent for morning study and started tilling for spring crop. He tunneled the plow into the soil, grunting and cursing as it frequently got stuck. The winter's frost hadn't fully dissipated, turning the chore of mild difficulty into one that was nearly unbearable. Brenner's eggs grew with the days passing. His hands blistered red and raw. His two mules were breathing heavily. Brenner's wife came out of the house at midday, calling for him to take his luncheon. Soon, Joan! He called back, shading his eyes with his hand. With the plow already settled and the mules gathering back their strength, Brenner took a moment to assess Kipling's plan in action. Peddlers and paupers had been at it since dawn. 
He watched as a man in rags crawled low in the mud. A rusted blade curled under his wrist, ambushed a line of crows roosting in a palisade fence. He swiped them off the fence in one blow, leaving a severed foot clinging to the wooden stake. The man stabbed at them for good measure and collected his kill with a pleased grin. Brenner laughed and shook his head affably, then went in for his meal and finished his work with the plow soon after. Paul came home as Brenner was securing the mules in the barn. Today's studies went well? Learned something new, have you? Brenner opened the door and they went in the house. Joan had the fire going in the clay oven and was busy laboring in the kitchen with supper. The smell of fresh bread and boiling cabbage filled the room. Old Testament from the Bible, said Paul. It was about Moses and the Exodus, where he freed the slaves from Egypt, Brenner finished smiling. Yes, and then then he parted the Red Sea. That's right, my son. And what lesson did you take from this? Do what God tells you to? Yes, but it really means you never stand by while others suffer. Paul nodded and Brenner shuffled his hair. Joan finished setting the table and called them both to supper. They had pheasant stew with roasted vegetables and bread. Paul ate heartily while Brenner picked at his food and took little bites sparingly. I predict the meeting went well last night, said Joan. Her soft olive-brown skin glowed in the firelight. It appears as if educated minds have prevailed. It appears so, but somewhere deep down inside, he felt different. It seems to work, even if it's barbaric. I do not know how long I can stand to hear their cries. It should not be long. Many men are very optimistic. Money is a powerful motivator. I saw a strange crow today, Papa. Brenner looked at his son. Oh? Yes, it was big. He spread his arms wide to emphasize the fact. Big as an eagle with ash markings, and it only had one eye. Brenner went stiff in his chair. He had killed a crow last season with features like those described by Paul. It had had its beak buried in a squash, and when it looked up, startled by Brenner's stealthy presence, Brenner remembered those gray streaks resembling silver tears. He'd hurled a jagged stone at its head, knocking it limp beside its meal. Its head had been caved in and its left eye had burst in its skull, leaving tears of dark red blood running down its face. He'd carried it off and set it by the tree line of Faring Forest crossing himself for prematurely expiring one of God's creatures. Where, son? Atop the weather vane on the stables. His stomach sank, and the little appetite he had was gone now. Brenner retired to bed shortly after supper in somewhat of a daze, oblivious to everything around him, save for his thoughts on the crows and the faint drizzle that had started outside. The next five days passed in a loathsome crawl, The poor were enjoying their new enterprise while Mavis strutted along the dirt roads. His hands rested on the handle of his sheath claymore, offering his encouragement and thanks. Brenner couldn't help but think how, despite the prodigious success of Kipling's plan, the number of crows was still growing. It seemed for everyone killed, ten took its place. And they were getting bolder. The circle gathered a second time at high noon. A plague is what we have here! Mavis said, heated. Only we have birds instead of locusts. They just keep coming, Arthur added. Yesterday I watched as the murder of crows took down one of Bree Godfrey's steeds. Pecked the life right out of them, they did. Then cleaned the flesh from the animal's bones. Never have I heard of such a thing, Mavis said. His eyes were blank, blinded with terror in the realization of what the crows were capable of doing. What should we do? I will tell you what we should do. Kipling said, scratching his thin mustache. We should leave them be for now and see if they grow bored with our town. 
Mavis shot him a look of disapproval. You cannot be serious. I agree with the good physician's suggestion, said Arthur. They appear to be attracted to the dead, not in mourning, but rather for sustenance, as if they prefer the flesh of their own kind. It frightens me something awful. As it does me, said Kipling. Brenner was relieved by the direction in which the conversation was headed, for the sake of not provoking whatever power lay beneath the skins of the crows. A wise decision, he said. Let God and nature tend to them. I cannot believe what I'm hearing, Mavis said. If we stop, their numbers will double for sure, as will their courage. Their courage was never fettered to begin with, Constable Mavis, said Arthur. They have always tested the boundaries of our patience for as long as I can remember. Mavis clenched his fists and pressed his lips together in restraint. Very well, then. A temporary cease order will commence on the morrow. The damn crow wins. Brenner downed his whiskey in one fast swallow, fully satisfied. The cease order did not have the intended desired effect. In the passing days, Brenner watched with growing fear as the crows multiplied and grew stronger. The day after the circle parted for the second time, Brenner was tending to his young corn stalks on a dreary gray afternoon. A scream emanated from the north end of Melbourne. He stood up, followed the source of the sound with his eyes and ears, and found that it was coming from the stables. His throat closed at the sight. His breath became erratic. Arthur, a respected blacksmith and friend of Brenner, was pecked to the point of delirium and was lifted against his will by several dozen heavy-bodied crows, swinging and kicking to break himself free. He bobbed in the air like an unsteady puppet as the bird struggled with his weight. The horses and mules were uneasy in their stalls. Crows swooped in to replace those beaten away by their would-be victim. Several nearby men came to his aid, swatting the birds with pitchforks and hoes. Brenner froze. He could only watch and dread as the crows drove their beaks into Arthur. The sound was like spears gutting the hide of a bloated hog. Then they dropped Arthur and floated out of the stable windows, cawing and squawking in triumph. Brenner wept as he stood over Arthur's corpse. The crows had ripped the heart straight from his chest. I think we should leave here. Leave? Joan asked. For heaven's sake, why? There is evil in our town. I do not know where it resides, but the crows deliver its message. Message? This is our punishment for some great sin. Or many. The night after Arthur's death, the old, white-haired physician, Kipling lay on his bed, hands crossed over his chest. Resting soundlessly, a dying fire crackling in the middle of the room. Ezra, his bloodhound, had feasted on a dead crow earlier in the day, and now lay contented by the fireplace, sleeping just as peacefully as her master, but only for a moment. Seconds later, she was awake and whining. A moving bolt snaked across her side and disappeared beneath her ribcage. There was a muffled crack and Ezra alighted to the sitting position. Another blow and she was sent back to her side. The thing jabbed and prodded at her innards, and all she could manage in her old age was a few pathetic groans and whimpers until a long beak seared through her auburn-bloodied fur and put her out of her misery with a piercing lance. The crow squeezed itself through the small tear it had made, feathers saturated with her blood, and flapped its wings dry, splattering the floor with crimson freckles of scarlet droplets. It walked across Ezra's limp body and lightly treaded over the wood boards toward Kipling's bed. Its black eyes never removed from its target. It climbed the overhang of the coverlet with its talons and beak and waddled up onto Kipling's chest. It sat there, blood drying to a crust on its feathers, staring down at the sleeping physician. Kipling double-gulped a breath of air and the crow cawed. His eyes shot open. 
The last thing he felt was the bird's stout bill burrowing deep into his throat. Mavis paced the confines of town hall with a worried look on his face. Brenner sat at the stretch of oak table at the forefront of the room, calmly watching the constable stride with heavy steps. An untouched cup of brandy sat before him. "'We have to do something,' said Brenner. "'You mustn't doubt my feeling on this. Not any more.' "'His tongue,' Mavis said, lips shaking. "'The filthy vermin removed his tongue. How could a man die of such a thing?' He choked on his blood, an awful way for any man to die. Brenner sensed guilt on the constable's shoulders, too large for any mortal man to stand. "'This is madness!' exclaimed Mavis. He unsheathed his claymore and held it in front of him. I will not allow this town to be held prisoner by a murder of damned crows. I will slay every last one of them myself if I have to. Your arm would give after twenty strokes with that heavy thing. Besides, we've already tried that. More come every day, it seems, from every direction of the world. Mavis's arm started to quiver along with his lips, and he frowned in desperation. He threw the claymore across the room. It clanged on the far wall and fell to the floor. Mavis ran to where Brenner was sitting and kneeled. Please! His eyes welled up and formed puddles over the bags beneath them. They will come for me, too. Let his confession cleanse our town. What would the crows want with the likes of you? You were right, good friend, Mavis said. The birds are a curse. I just didn't want to believe it. He took a chair next to Brenner. The setting sun cast him from the windows and onto his face, dilating his pupils to pinpoints. Do you recall the night of the woman drifter? Brenner did recall the particular night. The four of them, Arthur, Kipling, Mavis, and Brenner, had been to the Wellwisher's Tavern one evening after the festivities of All Hallows' Day, imbibing spirits and Belgian beer with great relish. The woman, a fair-haired, blue-eyed lass not much older than twenty winters, walked in with her indigo cloak wrapped around her face. Soaked to her skin from the evening rainfall, she'd taken a seat at one of the empty tables and ordered chicken soup and bread from the keep. She sipped her soup slowly, but noisily. The four had been drinking themselves out of their wit, save for Kipling, who preferred non-alcoholic spiced cider, claiming alcohol was not a viable part of a physician's livelihood. Mavis noticed the slurping and started to stop it. He saw the drifter woman and decided to make a pass at her instead. She put up her hand in a gesture of non-interest, her nails rough and haggard at the edges, never taking her eyes off her food as she did. Mavis slapped it away and continued to badger her. The badgering turned to heckling, heckling to harassment. Brenner recalled that he, Arthur, and Kipling attempted to keep the constable from embarrassing himself. Mavis continued to harass the woman until the barkeep and several other patrons stepped in to put a stop to it. Mavis had then backed away willingly, smiling and stumbling backwards toward the bar. That's all Brenner could remember. There had been more to that night than you saw, said Mavis. I did not know what I was thinking. Had my sanity been with me... I would not have thought of doing what I did. Mavis? Brenner asked, sick in his voice. What did you do? Soon after, we retired for the night. I slipped to the side of the tavern for a bit of fresh air. You and the others were gone. I saw the woman headed northbound on the road. Brenner wanted to disbelieve what he was hearing. It would mar his respect for the constable. Mavis slammed his fist on the table and clenched his teeth. I forced myself upon her, and she resisted me. God, Brenner, what have I done? He steeled himself and sipped deeply from Brenner's cup. She screamed, and I let off. 
but she would not stop, just screaming and screaming, and I tried to hush her, but she was in hysterics. She scratched me and then bit me, and my temper broke, and I slapped her. Her head met with a stone. She was gone before I realized what had happened. Why haven't you spoken of this before? You did not need to know. Nobody did, except those who helped me conceal my crime. Arthur and the good doctor. Yes. Eustead was too far to trouble you. I summoned Arthur and Kipling to help carry your body deep into Faring Forest. There we set her to rest beneath a Carn grave. He sipped greedily from Brenner's cup again. I'm so sorry you had to hear it this way, old friend. But I want you to know the truth before I am forced to face my end. Never did I think her to be a witch. And even if she were, she's dead. Brenner placed a consoling hand on Mavis's shoulder, but said nothing. Mavis finished off the brandy. What is there to do? The priest is in the castle across the forest. Sorcery is unknown to the likes of a farmer. Brenner rose to his feet. We need God on our side. You're not suggesting we cross the forest. They'll butcher us. I do not see what choice we have. Gather what provisions you need. It is a half day's trek to the other side. We'll meet at the crossroads on the west end of the town at midnight. The dark will hide our presence from the damnable beasts. Neither made it to the crossroads. Brenner returned home as dusk fell, filled his water skin and wrapped a couple of sausages, a half loaf of bread, and an apple in a cloth. He confided in Joan for the reason for his brash departure, as well as the constable's night of debauchery that stood at the center of the crow's resolve. And she, though shaken and confused, took it on good faith to trust her husband of thirteen years. He kissed her, thinking, The strongest part of him lies in her. He looked at Paul and explained that he was going to help the constable arrest a bad woman in the forest. "'Is it the lonely woman?' he asked, and Brenner wondered what he'd meant. "'I see her walking alone at the edge of the woods sometimes when I return from study. She's laughing some days and weeping on others. I fear for her sanity.' Brenner swallowed hard and hugged his son close. A fluttering sound whipped by the window and Brenner turned in its direction. It was succeeded by another as two more closely sequenced together, until they became constant, every flutter blended into the next, making a sound like sheets flicking in a strong wind. The wood shutter started to shake. The light of the moon was flecked with passing shadows. Brenner pushed Paul and Joan to his back to guard them. His eyes roamed the room for something to defend them with, opting for an iron poker leaned against the hearth of the fireplace. He snatched it and held it at arms. The silent night air broke with the calling of the crows. They surrounded his home like the funnel of a ravenous maelstrom. They're all around us! Joan cried out. Brenner moved to close the shutters and secured all but one when out of the blackness he saw a figure floating amidst the birds, seemingly untouched by their aerial disarray. It grew closer and Brenner could see that the crows were in fact carrying it, its arms held out in cruciform. Brenner's mouth dropped open. Floating before him was the woman Drifter. Her face was withered and without eyes, and her once indigo cloak was now a colorless shroud hanging loosely on her skeletal form. "'Leave us be, you godless heathens!' he bellowed. The crows pulled her right arm forward, revealing the severed head of Mavis. His face stuck in a pinched grimace of pain. "'You murdering whore!' Brenner screamed. The witch laughed, and it sounded eerily like the calling of the crows. Mavis's eyes shot open. 
Brenner stifled a scream with the back of his hand and watched as the constable's eyes sucked back into their sockets and disappeared. They reappeared in the empty sockets of the witch's face. Just as this happened, every part of her that had once been decayed blossomed back into purity. Nails, eyes, skin, hair, and clothes. Brenner slammed the shutters closed and fastened them with an iron bar. He went to Joan and Paul and hugged them close, fearing it very well may be the last time he ever hugged them again. The bolt on the front door snapped off and the door flew open. Crows spilled inside, flew around the huddled family, and took rest on the many pieces of furniture in Brenner's home. The witch walked in, her head bowed, and her hands folded in front of her, and stopped just in front of Brenner. "'I have done nothing to you,' he said, dropping the poker. "'You've no cause to harm me or my family.' The witch slipped something from the opening of her cloak and threw it on the floor in front of him. It clanged at Brenner's feet. It was Mavis's claymore, stained in blood. She then lifted her head, revealing the face from under the hood of the cloak. "'Flawless!' Brenner thought, with one small and disturbing flaw. Her pupils glowed fire red and showed him the heavy price of being a necromancer. A soul blackened and bound for hell. "'Pick it up!' the witch said. It is a gift. Brenner bent over and lifted the claymore. It was heavy and cold to the touch. He ran his eyes over it twice. The surrounding crows cawed their cacophonous praise. It suits you well, the witch said through a smile. What happened to you was a mistake, Brenner said. They didn't have to die. My judges are fair in spirit, she said, holding out her hands to the crows. They took back what was rightfully mine. Three lives for one sounds to me a trifle unfair. I say you're finished with this town, woman. The witch chuckled. I still have business here. The last of it being with you, good farmer. I've spoke once of this. I've done nothing to you, witch. I've come to claim what I came for before your companions made it worse for themselves. A crow landed on the witch's narrow shoulder. Brenner recognized it at once. Ash-gray streaks like tears below one eye, and an empty cavity where the other had once been. I have a life debt with my crows, and they to me. She brushed the side of the bird on her shoulder. It squawked and tipped its head to the feel of her hand. Bella has been a loyal friend and assistant for a lifetime longer than any crow has ever lived. Her call brings dread to all who cross me. Brenner stared fretfully at the witch's bird. You owe her an eye, dear sir. The witch reached her arm out, not for Brenner as he'd expected, but to his son, Paul. Her fingers curled like a crouched spider ready to attack. No! Brenner yelled, moving between his son and the witch's outstretched hand. Me! It was all my doing. I'm the one who owes your Bella an eye. The witch splayed a grin of great pride. The sword suits you indeed, crowed the witch. Brenner dropped to his knees before the witch. Bella's cyclopean gaze followed him. Joan cried out and reached for her husband, holding Paul close at her waist. Brenner put up his hand and halted her without looking up. He understood the witch's reprisal, however cruel it may be, for want of a just and balanced world. Turn around, Joan, and do not let Paul see nor here. Joan did as Brenner said and pressed Paul's face to her stomach while covering his ears. Brenner squeezed his eyes shut hard as the witch's hand moved toward him. Please, make it quick. 
Your payment will not be in vain. A nomad found his way into Mailburg to take up lodging for the night, and to gather fresh supplies several months later. He stumbled upon the village as one might find money on the ground. Mailburg was now well hidden from the rest of the world. Its name had been scratched from all road signs, the archway entrance torn down at the crossroads, and weeds now filled any path that had once showed horse-drawn wagons the way in. The indigenous didn't welcome the nomad, as they once would have. Drifters came, got what they needed, and left, receiving never more than a cordial nod or a half-hearted smirk from the locals. As he left, the nomad noticed the quiet man watching him closely with a tainted claymore at his side and a bearskin patch over his right eye. He appeared fifty, but in reality, he was only thirty-nine. If he'd asked, the nomad would have learned that the man's name was Brenner, constable, loving husband and father, and self-made farmer. The crows visit his crop quite regularly to indulge in his corn and butternut squash. The nomad noticed the scarecrows the bird sat upon and looked twice to make sure what he saw was real and not just madness setting in from being too long on the road. They were made from human bones. I really enjoyed reading this story, if for no other reason than it does the one thing that can be the hardest, but is the most absolutely necessary thing. The thing that all great stories do. It made me suspend all my disbelief. Everyone's seen The Birds, and it would have been so easy to play on that, to ride the coattails of one of the great movies of all time. But John didn't do that. Instead, he created something wholly original. As a writer myself, I can certainly appreciate how hard it can be to turn away from that allure and instead strive for originality. Speaking of writers, we're now a paying market. So if you enjoyed this story, and if you want to hear even more great fiction more often... Support us and the writers we set in front of you by sending us a little scratch. All donations received will be used to further the site and pay our authors. If you can help out, I promise you it will be gratefully received. If not, you can still help by going to iTunes and reviewing the podcast, blogging about your favorite story, or just liking us on Facebook. Of course, you can always just spread the love around a bit and do all those things. I'll have another story for you in a couple of weeks. I hope you'll be back for it, and we'll bring some friends along for the ride. This episode was produced under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Some sounds are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. Our music was courtesy of The Contrarian. Find out more at thecontrarianmedia.com. I'll leave you once again with Crooked Fang's Night of the Dead. Find them at crookedfang.com. Thanks for listening. Stay well.